Well, hello everyone. Uh, it's fantastic to see you all uh, here on the weekly hoon. Now, this is an experimental thing. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka, and you could also see Peter Bale there joining us uh, this week from Auckland. Peter, how are you? Hi, Bernard. I'm excellent. Thank you. It's a lovely sunny sunny afternoon, and I'm nearly uh, once I finish with you, I'll be finished for the day or the week. So, I'm really looking forward to that. And we're going to be talking about the events of the week that you covered in your spinoff podcast and I've covered in my spin-off World Wisdom plus a few other things, right? That's right. I mean, for those who've downloaded our podcast in the past, you might have, might recall seeing the News Over the Horizon um, podcast, which we do weekly on geopolitics and anything else that takes our fancy. It's a lot of fun and it's a nice way to sort of bookend the week. So, Peter, tell us what is it that, that's taken your fancy over the last week before we jump into my thing on public transport? Sure. Well, I, I, what I try to do with the spin-off thing, but also kind of in my life, I mean, one of the easy things about doing this is, you know, I'm looking around anyway, but there's a really fascinating story this week from China, or really from the US about China. Everybody might remember there's an organization called the Federation of American Scientists, which Albert Einstein and various others and people who worked on the Manhattan Project set up in 1945 because they were worried about the end of the world as we know it through nuclear weapons. And they've um, that organization has released a rather extraordinary set of documents this week and satellite images of an absolutely enormous 800 square kilometer Chinese silos being built in Xinjiang, which of course is the controversial area where the Uyghurs live. And they're just remarkable. It is, it is covering an immense area. Of course, it doesn't necessarily mean that there will be a missile in each, in each silo. But the reason I picked it up is that I think, you know, we, we just don't have that same sense of dread and alarm about nuclear Armageddon that we did in the 60s and 70s when you know, I was uh, barely existing. But I, am, I do recall very strongly the, 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 the sense of potential of obliteration with nuclear weapons. And of course, to some extent, the fear of climate change has become this, this generation substitute. And yet we still have, to, to a large extent, kind of the uncontrolled or semi-controlled development of um, Nuclear, nuclear weapon. And what's one of the interesting aspects about this is that it would, you know, were, were they all to be filled, it would be a very significant step up in, in China's nuclear capacity. But it's also worth thinking that, you know, even even were they filled up, the uh, Russia and the United States still have close weapons uh, stockpiles of about 4,000 4, warheads. So we're all still capable of completely obliterating everything on Earth if it all goes wrong. And of course, we all know from, from films and so on that there have been many nuclear weapons accidents and, and, and handling accidents. And, you know, it is, it is a very interesting issue that you've now got effectively the, the three superpowers and the other undeclared nuclear powers beyond India and Pakistan, which, of course, is, is Israel. And you mentioned in your uh, spin-off email some some background reading, which I'll have to jump into. I would add to that the the great documents or the the great stories from Daniel Ellsberg about his leaking of the Pentagon Absolutely. Papers, but also yep. he actually started his job in the U.S. government trying to analyze um, whether America's protections against accidentally nuking someone were very good, and he concluded he was scared witless after after doing it. Yeah, well, you know, it, 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 I've, I've met on a couple of occasions, and he remains an extraordinary fellow because he was highly intelligent and highly sophisticated to do the job that he was doing. And of course, what he leaked was, apart from nuclear stuff, where the, 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 the Pentagon Papers were very much around 
the extent to which the United States has lied to itself, in a sense, the way the establishment has lied to itself and to the American people about the state of, uh, in, in Vietnam. The book, what, what I often do mention books, Bernard, because I think we all, you know, like good book tips. And what, what I recommend about the Manhattan Project is an absolutely extraordinarily large and wonderful book called American Prometheus, which is about Robert Oppenheimer, the, uh, the person who created and ran and delivered on the Manhattan Project and was then sort of, you know, cast into, into, into a movie really in the, 19, in the 1950s, tied up in the whole um, Red Zone of the Bands camp. It's a wonderful, wonderful book, American Prometheus. And it, this stuff that's happening in China, you know, a while ago, we wouldn't care too much about it. But with America and China having this strategic competition, you know, making rude noises to each other in the South China Sea. And interesting, this week, the the prime wolf warrior diplomat, the guy who's the chief spokesperson for the Chinese government in Beijing, has actually just been appointed to be the Chinese ambassador in the United States. Yeah, it's um, absolutely, it's absolutely extraordinary that that, is, that has happened. And it is such a, in a way, it's funny because this whole wolf warrior thing, you know, the, the, the kind of, you know, that kind of Russian-bound di diplomats, they will say whatever the hell they like. It is, it is a remarkably provocative gesture to have made. It was interesting in this, in this piece about this, this report about the nuclear uh, silos, the Global Times, which is a, a mouthpiece for the Chinese Communist Party, said that really this was a response to how bellicose the US had been, but they also raised a lovely idea, which is the kind of thing that this ambassador raises, which is sort of utterly bogus whataboutism, suggesting that in fact these silos might in fact be the foundations for wind farms. <laughs> oh, I love it. And of course, yeah. we had our own rocket launch today. The rocket lab just took off from Mahia Peninsula with, we understand, some contracts for the US military. And it's also pretty impossible for us to, you know, ignore what's going on in space or near space, because so much of the contest is happening up there as well, and um, worth keeping an eye on. But some good news from that part of the world with the North Koreans and the South Koreans talking to each other again. Yeah, it's a really early this week, Wednesday, Wednesday afternoon, Pyongyang and Seoul opened up their uh, communications hotlines, which... You know, given, given that you've got nuclear weapons in North Korea and a, and a very uh, hard-talking leader in Kim Jong-un, you know, it has to be it has to be a positive mood. I mean, it's always worth remembering that the Korean War is not over. I mean, it, it ended officially in 19, it, it, it sort of, practically in 1953, but only with an armistice. There's never been a you know, there's never been a definitive treaty or an end to it. And so, you know, I think it is positive that they, that they've opened up this conversation again. And it's also coming at a time when there are hints out of North Korea, as you know, it's very difficult to get information out of the what they call the Hermit Kingdom, although it was amusing to see that um, Hosking is now calling New Zealand the Hermit Kingdom, which is kind of amusing. <laughs> Kim Jong-un has said that there is a, a tense food situation in North Korea, which you know, which is which is an awful idea because you've had multiple fam famines there. And of course, it's very unclear what's happened with COVID in North Korea because, you know, it's so hard to get information out, but there have been hints that um, it is deeply widespread. And we were talking earlier about Daniel Ellsberg leaking, you know, secrets to try and save the world. An interesting leak that's happened that's just come out, which probably should have had more attention, a bit like the Snowden exercise, but are with drones. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's not so much the leak that's come out as the, as the guy who did the leak from the US Air Force. He's a, he's a drone intelligence officer who was working in one of those, you know, extraordinary closed environments where they're flying um, the drones out over Yemen and probably doing it from somewhere like Nevada. 
and he went to a peace conference in 2013 and he heard a Yemeni guy describing how two family members of, of the two members of his family had been killed in the strike. And allegedly the strike happened only a couple of days after the family was trying to persuade these people to leave Al-Qaeda. And what he realized was that, you know, that, that I'm sorry, he was doing it from a base in Afghanistan, not from Nevada, but what he realized was that they thought it was a really successful attack. And then he just couldn't imagine. He was horrified, he said. He said, quote, I believe that it is wrong to kill, but it is especially wrong to kill the defenseless. He bleeds what was necessary to dispel the lie that drone warfare keeps us safe and that our lives are worth more than theirs. And so he, he, he leaked quite a package of information about how they do the targeting, how the drones are fly, flown and, and so on. And he's been jailed this week for 45 months. One of the reasons I, did, I picked this up out of the Washington Post during the week, Bernard, was because there's an absolutely amazing data visualization that's a couple of years old now by the Bureau of Investigative Journalists in London. And it is a remarkable data representation of every drone start strike during the um, last Bush presidency and the Obama presidency. And what, what it shows is how indiscriminately drones were used under the Bush presidency and then under Obama, they would use an extraordinary amount, but they became much, much more effectively targeted with many, many fewer civilians killed. And it's just to be able to see how the, presumably how the skill changed, how the targeting changed, and but the immense use of them. And I think this is going to be really interesting again, as we see the withdrawal of the United States forces from Afghanistan, that they may still go in and do these strategic strikes or, or tactical strikes with drones. And of course, they've even had B-52s flying over Afghanistan in the past couple of weeks, allegedly or theoretically trying to support the Afghan forces in their struggle against the Taliban, which clearly they're losing. Yeah, you do wonder about the use of these new technologies, which allow people to project lethal force from across the other side of the planet without any personal risks to themselves. And also without the risk that someone's going to be shot down or captured. And it really makes it much less politically dangerous for someone to attack someone from a distance. It seems yeah, you don't. No, it's, you don't... It's, it's a really interesting ethical dilemma, the whole thing. And I think that's one of the reasons why it was so interesting that this guy, Daniel Hale, the signals intelligence officer who made this leak, you know, really felt that, that, that he was doing it all at a, at, at a, at a remove. And he was horrified by the reality when he when it was exposed to him. It, it, it's also interesting, you know, we, we've had the case, of course, I think it was under the Obama administration, where the one of these drone attacks was authorised to kill an American who was a bomb maker in Al Qaeda in in the Yemen in the Yemeni Peninsula. So, you know, there's all the ethics of all of this is pretty extraordinary. It's not going to go away. I mean, the drones the drones are here to stay, and you can see from that Bureau of Investigative Journalists data presentation just how effective they are and how many fewer as a percentage civilians are being killed. They've, you know, they've become highly accurate. And um, now very cheap as well. What I found interesting is that the, the last sort of war that's been around in the last uh, few years, conventional war with, you know, tanks and troops and things, was in one of the former Soviet republics, where it turned out one of the sides had been very clever at acquiring lots of cheap drones and hooking them up with missiles and taking out tanks. In a way well, that, that, was the Azerbaijan, that was the that, sorry that was the Azerbaijan conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh against the Armenians, and they used some very inexpensive Turkish uh, drones to absolutely the Armenian forces. You know, it was very, very, very decisive. Yeah, and that that, that again, it's one of those asymmetrical. Uh, warfare te technologies that America obviously um, had a jump on everyone else. But, 
you know, you can go down to Noel Leeming and get yourself one of these things <laughs> to take lots yeah. of pictures. Not that I'm suggesting I'm about to hook up some sort of device for, um, you know, sprinkling fairy dust on someone, but yeah, still. Well, it's also interesting, but it, it fits in also with the, you know, with the US concerns about China militarily. But one of the problems, because I saw a story the other day to say that the Chinese military drones, which are being sold to various various markets now, are about a tenth of the cost of the equivalent American ones, and little, let alone these Turkish ones, which are apparently extremely efficient and very, very low cost. Speaking of technology in China, there's been some big news in the, not just the geopolitical world, but the corporate world, because China, a bit like the rest of the world actually, is trying to control its tech companies. But of course, in China, they really can control their tech companies. Uh, and there's been a bunch of CEOs who've you know, gone missing or pulled out of their companies. And this week, we've seen quite a big move with Didi Shuseng, which is the um, Chinese equivalent of Uber, and which had listed on the New York Stock Exchange, it seems without the permission of the Chinese Communist Party, who basically uh, yanked them back. Could you tell us, you know, what's happening here? Yeah, well, we, we, we've talked about this because it's been going about 10 days or so. And I, it, it really is because it was, you know, they raised $4.4 billion on this in the New York Stock Exchange. And, the, you know, Didi is enormous. You know, this is, this is like cancelling Uber. Didi bought the Uber business from Uber when Uber realized it was failing in the United States. Didi is here in New Zealand, at least in Auckland. You know, they've been forced to pull their apps off the Apple and uh, Android stores in China. And this is just a phenomenally powerful move against them. The share price has collapsed. You know, this is this is really taking on all of that kind of Deng Xiaoping capitalism with Chinese characteristics and saying, hang on a minute, we don't like your US listings. They're also using, somewhat bogusly, I would imagine, the idea that it's all about protecting user data, that they don't want user data going off to US data centers and so on, which of course is a, a, a terrific flip of uh, the whole TikTok discussion about why the United States or Trump at least didn't want TikTok in the United States. So I, I, I think again, but you and I disagree with this a little bit, there's got to be more engagement with China on these things. But the Chinese attack against its own unbelievably successful um, companies is absolutely phenomenal. The one they've done this week, which is which is following on from this DD thing, is that they've effectively said that education in China or online education has to be done by non-profits. And yet there are four or five listed Chinese um, education companies that are listed on New York Stock Exchange whose business has effectively just been destroyed or profitability rather has just been destroyed. The idea is that they shouldn't be able to make profits from providing online education for Chinese people, which is you know immensely possible, popular. That's right. So it's, and it's, it's really a, it's, it's a, bad, it's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy that these companies are now being attacked. Yeah, and there's a few New Zealand companies who have been trying to service that market as well. One including uh, Crimson Consulting, which effectively tries to train up Chinese kids so that they can get into Ivy League universities in the United States. And uh, I suspect that business will struggle when the Chinese government gets involved. And elsewhere, China has jailed a, a billionaire farmer in, in China who's been criticizing local authorities, actually organized protest against the local party officials, and he's just been jailed for 18 years. So yeah, in no, it's a phenomenal, it's a phenomenal set of, you know, there's, there's, there's real power being wielded here, right in front of us. And it's, so, it's, you know, there's a domestic, there's a domestic issue going on here, as well as the whole US 
US China thing. There was quite an interesting case today of, of some people protesting against reporters being attacked while while videoing people in China and the Chinese people were, 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 were um, recorded by those. Our friend or your friend Anne Marie Brady was talking about the bystanders trying to protect the reporters and saying why shouldn't why shouldn't people see what's going on here, which was a great sentiment. Yeah, and and also in in China, there's some concern that uh, the Delta variant is getting out of getting out of hand there. Nanjing, one of the cities there, has been locked down. That for me is one of those sleeper stories this week that could jump up and hurt us. Because so far, the global economic recovery has been extraordinarily strong and surprisingly you know, robust. Although this week we had slightly weaker than expected USG GDP figures. But of course, it's been China that has really helped you know, fire up the global economy in large parts because they shut down their, their COVID outbreaks very fast. And the warriors, you've got a billion people there who are still unvaccinated, and the vaccinated ones are with the slightly less effective Chinese uh, versions, Sinopharm and Sinovac. If Delta gets let's rip in China, that could really be a problem because, of course, they really do shut down, unlike, unlike the people in Sydney, it seems. Yeah, well, I noticed also today, Bernard, that the, the CDC in the United States has said that it is as, is as contagious as the common cold. And so that's about its, you know, its transmissibility is extremely high, which we know. You've seen today that there's effectively, they've also proposed a national mask mandate, federal mask mandate, which is, is not happening. And there's still this stupid politicization of, of whether you wear masks. So, and, and of course, President Biden's been talking today about federal employees having to either be vaccinated or not, in fact, come to work without a mask and test. So it is. It's kind of ramping up, and, and it is one of those aspects that's rather depressing that the it's so politicised and so non-bipartisan in the US, and some of that, of course, will 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 come here. We've had you know, commentators this week saying that, that questioning the whole principle of vaccination. I mean, I, I remain critical here about the pace of vaccination, but very grateful that it is happening at all, and very grateful we've kept Delta up so far. I I just am not certain how long that can go on. Yeah, one of the big things that's happened today in Auckland is the first mass vaccination event at the Manukau Event Centre. I did a podcast last week with the spin-off about looking at how we can get that vaccination rate up towards the 80% seen as necessary for you know, herd immunity of some sorts. Although increasingly the idea of herd immunity seems quite outdated when you consider that it's clear people who are vaccinated can get COVID and can spread COVID. And, yeah. um, and much less, of course. Yeah, much less likely, but yes, it's still possible. Yeah. And and so even if people had vaccination passports and came in and they could still spread it. And, you know, we've got the closure finally today of the bubble with Australia in terms of it's now formal to seven day sort of get home before everything shuts down is over today. And what has worried me, actually, aside from the China Delta outbreak in Nanjing, is the growing talk in New South Wales and Sydney that they can't handle any more lockdown past the end of August. And even if they haven't got everyone vaccinated, they're just going to do a Boris and open it up and let rip. And yeah, it does seem that it does. Have you seen that sentiment? Because I'm, I'm that, that sort of the underlying sentiment that seems to be in there from from uh, Gladys from the beginning. And of course, it's you know in the UK though oddly, you have got this very interesting phenomenon at the moment that since that so-called Freedom Day, when the, most of the restrictions were removed, the number of people in hospital has in fact fallen dramatically. However, 
I suspect what's actually happened is, there, is that there's a, I'm sorry, the number of new, sorry, the number of people in hospital has actually risen, but the number of new cases has fallen dramatically. That may well be because there's less testing, but it also may well be just a lag from that treatment day. But if it's not, then there's then there's something positive going on as well. And it just seems to be a little too early to be to be sure about that. Even Boris is not claiming it as a victory yet. Yeah, I mean that's the one another one of the good signs in the COVID story at the moment is that those um, new cases in uh, Britain seem to be coming down. Although record new cases in America, clearly it's completely shredding Malaysia, Indonesia, and and what we're seeing out of the uh, Olympics in uh, Tokyo is not not encouraging. Apart from the New Zealand gold medals, but anyway. Yes, exactly. Did we get some? Yeah, in the rowing today. Um, <laughs> I know, I know. I'm <laughs> but the other thing, there's some, some uh, initial reports, this one, early reports out of Israel at the moment as well about some evidence, because if you remember, we again have talked about this before, Benjamin Netanyahu did a deal with Pfizer to get the entire country vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine in return for all data, uh, population data about um, COVID going back to Pfizer. And it would appear as though the efficacy is falling quite sharply um, against Delta. So, you know, it, it is, we will remain vulnerable. And, um, you know, that kind of sense we had before, before Delta was fully evident that, that things might be getting better. I, I have a feeling that, you know, it's not. And we, again, need to be rather grateful where we are. The other news out of Australia to keep an eye on is that a new set of modelling has been given to the Australian Cabinet last night. There was another one of these uh, emergency national cabinet meetings in Australia today, which looks like it says that Australia is not going to be vaccinated at a high enough level to open up until well into next year. So what that says is it's very unlikely, I think, that the bubble is going to open up before the before next year, which is pretty disappointing. But at some point, as we get to you know some sort of peak vaccination level, and so do the Australians, and in theory, you know, you'd hope that they've done as much as they can in America and Europe, that we will start to see people realising that, you know, we can't keep it out. We've got to let some people in and do the best we can, even if it's as infectious as the coal, to, to get on with it. But, but as you say, I think they'll, they'll wait until they've got something close to what, what might establish herd immunity. And of course, the other difficult thing, and I, and I was looking for more information on this this week, and there really isn't very much yet still. It is still totally unclear how long the benefits of having or the sort of the the uh, protection of actually having had COVID gives you. It's really unclear whether it's three months, six months, or twelve months. And of course, what's also becoming clearer and clearer is the number of COVID, uh, long COVID cases have gone up, and the extent to which young people are being infected. And it is, you know, this is not a risk-free illness, even among even amongst the young. So, which is, is I'm not intending to um, scare the pants out of everybody, off everybody, but just some of these good things that get said about being, you know, young, only old people dying and, you know, young people will be fine. The risk is still phenomenal. And we just, I, I was thinking this morning also, but then you know, you know this as well, but the extent to which we expect our scientists to have hard and fast information about a disease that only emerged you know, in November 2019, it's pretty extraordinary. I think, you know, they've all done a remarkable job. And just while we finish on the, let me, let me maybe finish on COVID and then we'll go to go to tunnels and Pongadui because there's a, another remarkable new book come out uh, about this whole struggle, which I'm, I'm definitely going to get. And I recommend without having having read it yet is for Jeremy Farr, who is the um, director of the, of the Wellcome Trust, which is the, one of the largest medical research groups in the world, has put out a book with, a, with an FT journalist uh, called uh, Anjana Arahuja, 
called spike the virus versus the people. And much of it, apart from the sort of really interesting reminder about the TikTok, if you like, from October 2019 through to when it started to surface in, in, in Italy around the turn of the year and the beginning of 2020, the thing that comes out so evidently from this book is the pathetic way it's been handled by a number of politicians, but particularly the UK. And there's, there's a quote in the book from, that I, I'll just read out, there were simply no plans in place to meet the predicted autumn rise in cases. By the time the scientific advisory group for emergencies meeting on September the 21, September 21, infections were doubling about every week, even before the impact of school reopening. The stage was clear. A package of interventions will be needed to reverse the ex this exponential rise in cases. The message inc measures included a short lockdown, a circuit breaker. By the government, by their actions, the British government was also clear. We won't follow the, the scientific advice. We'll say we will, but we won't. It's really very, very damning. And I think we're seeing that again. You know, they are effectively setting up, setting themselves up for a theoretical herd immunity strategy yet again. So Bernard, you've been you've been exploring the, the hidden tunnels of Whanganui for in, in an exercise to look at what some of our older solutions to public transport might tell us about things we need to do now and also maybe things we regret ripping up. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, this is a, a, a great fun story for me. I get to go on location with Lynn, um, take some fantastic photos, meet some new people, and in particular, Anthony Tonnen. You probably haven't heard of him, uh, everyone, but he is the singer-songwriter who has just put out an album called Leave Love Out of This, which is the number two most popular album in New Zealand this week. But he's also a public transport advocate, a bit of a rail nut, I suppose you'd call it, and he did something really interesting a few months ago. He put his hand up, along with a bunch of other people in Whanganui, to run the Jury Hill Elevator. And for those people who haven't been to Whanganui, it is the most amazing long tunnel that goes into a hill, and then you go up to the top of the hill in an elevator to a complete garden suburb, which is literally about six minutes walk from the CBD of Whanganui. And it's this, for 4,000 people, it's like, you know, you're in the middle of nowhere, but it's a suburb. And, and they all got to, got to and from the city in the elevator, which of course, you know, goes up and down every couple of minutes. So it's extremely, it's a bit like the tube in that way. And it was part of a very vibrant public transport system in Whanganui up until the 1990s. And the point of this podcast with Anthony and my long walk down this white tunnel is to tell all those New Zealand people who perhaps can't remember it. Uh, maybe we've got some old gray hairs on the audience. <laughs> with us, all those people who think, oh, we can't have a public transport system to meet our carbon zero aims because, you know, we don't do buses and trains. Well, we used to do buses and trains and cycling yeah. and pedestrianism. And uh, I just wanted to sort of try and paint a picture of how we could go forward uh, in dealing with our carbon issues by looking backwards at how well we yeah. did it in the past. Well, I think sometimes, Bernard, you've been very astute on one particular thing, which is the kind of intergenerational theft that's gone on here. With you know, we've got people like those citizens and ratepayers groups who have suppressed and constrained the development of things like the Auckland mass rail, you know, mass transport system that Robbie wanted. And, and I, I was thinking today when we, you were telling me about this about Valparaiso in Chile has the most extraordinary system of funicular railways which go up and down the you know the hills. And if you had that in Wellington, I mean, I know there is one in Wellington, but you know, a funicular railway going up and down various streets in Wellington would be immensely 
uh, valuable. I, I would love to actually get a proper transport analyst, as we do that sometimes on, on to discuss whether some of these old methods that we use, like the old trams that went all the way from uh, downtown to Greenwood trolley buses. You know, I remember when I was a kid, we bought a whole bunch of Volvo trolley buses to replace, you know, truly hideously ancient trolley buses that were running around the farmer's trolley bus. What is now the kind of loop buses that uh, go around Auckland used to be used to be trolley buses. And of course, there's also somebody more modern, uh, more modern person, Elon Musk, getting back into the tunneling business with his uh, <laughs> mooring company. And I, I, I read this week that he's there is a proposal for him to have a tunnel in Florida. But if we think about you know how how close to the water level Florida is, it may be a little bit of a worry. But you know it would be a tunnel between two points, not for mass transit, but to send people through in Tesla. So there's a kind of discussion with, the, with these, with the, this is not one of his hyper, um, hyper tube, uh, hyperloop ideas with the sort of suction tube. This is literally Teslas driving up and down with individuals inside them, inside of, inside a specially built tunnel. So you've got this weird mix of the kind of car as king with the, with the, you know, the wonderful imagination of uh, Tesla and the, the boring company, this, this high speed tunneling company coming together in a rather weird idea, which is, Still very kind of, I'm going to sit in my own car rather than a, rather than a bus. Yes, time to, we've been uh, cracking on for 30 minutes, but open time to open it up to our attendees. I'm really Thank thrilled. You. We've got 28 people on. Which, um, and they're going to be better to do? No, no, which which is fantastic. And this is something we should maybe do a bit more regularly, where we get a, a glass of something nice on a Friday afternoon. We... We, we celebrate the week that's gone and look to the week that's uh, ahead of us. Thank you. For, cheers, Peter. And cheers to I all of you there. I hope you've all got your favourite beverage in front of you. And just ask some questions, uh, see if there's any questions we've got from our audience. Julian is uh, asking the question, though, the only affordable place is Christchurch. Um, so he's basically saying, can you really do public transport with a city that's under one million? Well, it's, that's an interesting one. A lot of people say, well, you can you only you really need, you know, London style, New York style, Tokyo style, millions and millions of people to get the economies of scale to make it work. But actually, particularly if you're not building massive new infrastructure, you're not plowing tunnels kilometers and kilometers. If you repurpose roads into busways or cycleways or pedestrian ways, particularly with compact and flat cities, you know, you can achieve an awful lot, I think, with these public transport networks. Yeah, I, I remember Adelaide had a very, and I must find out whether it's still there, and Adelaide did a very, very interesting job with busways, with, um, which are not dissimilar to what Auckland's done, particularly on the North Shore. But they were buses that were, would, could go onto a kind of concrete guided guided pathway. But I must see whether they whether they are still regarded as, as as having been successful. But we keep arguing about kind of light rail and these very these various options. We also know that a decent a decent I mean of course my brother absolutely hates this, but a decent bike path that is um, shielded and protected from cars does encourage cycling. In a sense, you have to build it, and they really will come. That's certainly yes. my experience. Not, not that bikes are the complete answer to everything. But. I'm from Wellington and there's a few hills, but it's amazing what you can do with these electric bikes. And if we can get them in much cheaper, that'd be much better. There's a question here from Chris Leach about financing the infrastructure, which is a, a great point. You know, back in 1935, the, 
First Labor government effectively borrowed money from the Reserve Bank of New Zealand as it was just being formed to start building state houses. And you know the question is, why don't we do it again? We've, we've got a Reserve Bank which is printing money out of nowhere to buy government bonds. It's actually just stopped uh, in the last week or so, but it could easily do that. And um, you could build the infrastructure that way. And certainly there's going to be some big costs. If you're going to you know, put buses everywhere, particularly electric buses, um, you're going to have to spend quite a bit of money on that fleet and configuring it, reconfiguring these roads, potentially doing some more pretty expensive um, railways. And so that is going to cost money. The question is, uh, how do you fund it? Um, I sort of agree with Chris. If there was a shortage of funding around and if we had no, no one to borrow it off, in 1935, you know, really the New Zealand government couldn't get the money from anyone. There was no one overseas who wanted to lend it to us. Everyone in New Zealand was broke. And so there was nowhere to go right in the immediate aftermath of the Great Depression. But right now, you know, we've got pension funds in New Zealand with $200 billion in um, cash. Much of it invested, or they want to invest it, in government bonds. And if you yeah. look overseas, um, central banks are desperate to buy government bonds everywhere as well. Just a couple of weeks ago, the Bank of Japan said it would use its foreign reserves to buy green bonds in other countries. Mm. And it's really easy now, particularly for New Zealand now, we're the only place in the world that would survive a mass extinction event. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's why yeah. Yep. Um, <laughs> um, to, I'm avoiding dystopia. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> to borrow money from the rest of the world at incredibly cheap rates, all you need to do is slap a green sticker on it. And it's realistic. If you're investing in infrastructure to reduce carbon emissions and improve housing affordability, you're definitely doing a good green thing. And, you know, that's a definite possibility. Let me ask you a slightly provocative question. Apart from the money, do we have the capability to do any of this? I mean, we haven't built a new power station for a very hydro power station for a very long time. I'm not sure whether we've done anything decent in transport since the Raurimu spiral. What, are we any good at this stuff anymore or do we have an anti-growth agenda? I, was, I went to a thing today and I heard a really interesting guy for you to talk to sometimes called Ganesh Nana from the Productivity oh, yep. Commission. Yep, I've and, talked to him before. You know, it, yeah. sounds, it sounds we have a really fundamental gap in what we're trying to do, you know, in, in both competence and the willingness to pay for it. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. 30 years ago, we decided that we couldn't do it that our, our economy and our society was going to not be growing in terms of its population, and that the government, particularly anyone, any government with Piggy Muldoon in charge of it, shouldn't be allowed to do any more infrastructure. There'd been too much thinking big, too much concrete and steel, too much, you know, riding roughshod over iwi and all sorts of other people to wreck the environment with, you know, dams and sin fuel plants and, you know, all of that mm. sort of stuff. So that's why we had the RMA and a complete change in the way we ran government to actually avoid doing it. We basically said, this is not what we do anymore. We're not dam builders. Yeah. We're real estate agents. <laughs> Well, it's funny, but there's it it a chap called Paul Kennedy who very kindly and absolutely accurately, I think, has said is we have a lot of A-grade infrastructure engineers and tunnel builders. However, none live in New Zealand, yeah, yeah. all are working in Europe and Asia. That's and he's right. absolutely right. I, I have a friend who works for one of the top three construction companies in the world. And these are, these are the kinds of companies who don't just build buildings. They, you know, they're building cities in Saudi Arabia and so on, you know, there's Kellogg and there's a couple of others with Bechtel. Not necessarily that we want to, you know, we want to operate just necessarily on that scale, but that sense of ambition and possibility, I worry that we that we need to get back to a little bit of that. And I'm not sure I, I, I see that too strongly in New Zealand, that there has to be a sense yeah. of growth and possibility. 
we certainly need some leadership and some not quite blue sky thinking, but some long term strategy that we play out to everyone. So my my view I've been expressing in the last uh, couple of months is that both sides of politics need to get together in the same way they did in creating the Reserve Bank and in bringing in the Public Finance Act and the RMA back in 1989 to actually say, OK, we've got a collective problem here. We need to get to carbon zero by 2050. We all voted for that. We need to get housing, make it affordable again. It used to be up until about 2000. And to do that, we're going to need to spend you know, $200 billion, whatever the number is, over 30 years. And that means we're going to have to build all this capacity, you know, recreate a ministry of works or whatever it is we're, we're going to have. And we can do it again. You know, there's no, no reason why we can't. I mean, look at the Rocket Lab guys. They're doing extraordinary things with technology. And we've got plenty of... You're sounding like, you're sounding like Bruce Beeson from Social Credit. <laughs> Chris will appreciate that. Chris yeah. Leach will appreciate that comment. Let me show you my walk shorts. Sorry, that's that's rude. I shouldn't be quite so rude. But, you know, we, we can do it if we think long enough ahead and if we have a collective uh, will to do it, if both sides of politics want to do it. The guts of the problem at the moment, of course, is that to do it, we're going to have to basically have a, have a larger share of government in the economy again. We're going to have to have higher taxes. We're going to have to redistribute some of the, the wealth that's been created for homeowners in the last 30 years. And we're also going to have to swamp the market with so many houses that, shock horror, the prices of houses might go down. And that's, at the moment, that's, that's like uh, a third rail, you know, poison pill for any politician at the moment. Third rail poison pill, that's, that's, oh, that's yeah. a combination of that's a, good, there, that's a good mix. Yeah. Do we have any other median voters who aren't strongly left or right are crying out for a party who sells us a generational vision? Well, that's that's true. Trouble is there isn't anyone anywhere in politics doing that at the moment. And yes. Any other questions there from our audience? We really appreciate you being there. We're going we're gonna to log off fairly shortly after three quarters of an hour and a a nice a glass of something uh, late in the day. We'd love to do this again, and we'll be recording. Oh, God, hey, wait a second. Chris Leach is saying Bruce Beeson was proved right. The Reserve Bank can create money. Nobody calls it social, called social credit funny money anymore. That is, that is, you know, that right. is true. That, that will be a question I put to Adrian Orr at the next Reserve Bank function. I'll say, Adrian, how does it feel to prove Bruce Beetham right? Yeah. <laughs> and see what, he, see what he says. I think he'll laugh, but maybe not with a lot of, joy um, i think so, we have to do one of these bernard or you have to do one of your podcasts about is there an anti-growth mentality in new zealand or as a friend yeah. of mine described it the other day a poverty mindset yeah i certainly think there's an anti-infrastructure anti-steel and concrete approach in new zealand i think those people who buy houses certainly love growth of house prices but they're not so keen on growth in a house next door to them and that's the, the guts of it. We've become um, a housing market with bits tacked on rather than a real economy. And we're very much focused on next month's tax-free property capital gain and not the next decade's houses for kids. And uh, uh, that's going to be tough to change. Although so, I think... Can we do a quick, a quick um, skateboarding skateboarding. Oh, yes, dog sorry. Skateboarding well. dog. Watch your skateboarding no, but, dog story. No, so we, we, we do want to do... Slightly more brutal one than the normal skateboarding dog one, but I, I came across a fascinating story today, which was being circulated in my some of my spheres, partly to remind us about 
masks and so on and the things that we've gotten used to, like safety safety belts and so on. And it was a story in a, in a terrific publication called spacemag.com. And it's about how in the 1920s and 1930s, there were serious doubts about whether uh, aircraft were safer or not with um, safety belts in them. And the analysis, the analysis had followed a whole bunch of crashes in World War One, where people, the pilots were actually killed by the buckles on the safety belt, not, not by, the, not by the, the accident itself. And there was a case of, of virtually an entire aircraft, um, only two people survived it, being killed um, in the 1930s in the United States, again, being killed by the belts themselves, or dying as a result of being twisted over the belts themselves. So it's a very interesting, you know, we now don't, we now know that it's a good idea. We, we, we don't carry parachutes on um, major aircraft, but it's, it's worth a look on airspacemag.com. Great. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting how views change over time and how pre-existing biases, you know, uh, often the confirmation bias is strong. And well, I remember, you know, you, you, you know, when I was a kid and safety belts were, were coming in and everything, but people would say, oh, that's no, much safer if you get thrown out of your holding. And if, you, if, you if I get into a crash, I'll just get thrown out, you know, <laughs> uh, not, to, not to mention, not to mention farmers not wanting roll bars on their tractors. You know, there used oh, to be yeah. a, a death a weekend on that. Yeah, no, maybe we're getting better at that. I, I don't know. Hey, thank you so much to everyone. It's just about 5.15. It's been wonderful to have you all on board this end. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you again, Peter, for um, doing our weekly Hoon. And for those of you who are Kaka regulars, a Hoon is a term collective for... Collective noun. Collective noun for the Kaka. And it's been a great Hoon around uh, the week that was on the Kaka. I'm Bernard Hickey and you've been Peter Bale and it's been great to... And you've all been Kaka'd as well. <laughs> Good stuff. Thank you very Cheers. much. Cheers to everyone. Please, please give us any feedback and we are just experimenting. So, you know, thank you very much. Cheers. Catch you later. Bye-bye.